This is Eric Haywood, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 27, for Monday, July 4th, 2011. I want to wish a very happy Independence Day to all of you Americans out there, and for those who are Canadian, happy Canada Day just happened over the weekend. And I guess uh, if you're in France, um, the 14 juillet, I uh, want to wish you a very happy as well. Um, but <laughs> on to our podcast. Today, I'm so excited to bring you an interview with writer-director Eric Haywood. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Eric in a moment, but first, a few news items. I'm going to really race through these because some of them you've heard before, but definitely do pay attention. One of them is, I forgot to mention it last week, Elephant Bucks by Sheldon Bull. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Sheldon on July 18th. So you want to make sure to read that book if you haven't already and get your questions in by Sunday, July 17th to make sure to get your questions asked in the interview. You can buy that book at tvwriterpodcast.com. Just go to the store there. There's his book as well as many, many others. Great prices. All of it run through amazon.com. But if you buy through the site, it helps to support the podcast would be very grateful. Sunday nights, make sure you take part in the TV Writer Chat at 6.30 p.m. Pacific or 9.30 p.m. Eastern. You can get the details at tvwriterchat.com. Another website to go to is the tvwriterpodcast.com site. Um, make sure while you're there, I'm going to highlight a few things quickly. The schedule page, you can find out who's coming and you can make sure to get your questions in on time. There's a TV writer Twitter database with over 700 TV writers and continues to climb. There's, as I mentioned, a store to stock up on great TV writing books. You can support the podcast while you do that. And speaking about supporting the podcast, there's also a PayPal donation link. You, your donations go a long way, and I'm really, really thankful for them. Um, one note that I, ha I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast before is some servers have difficulty connecting to the website for some strange reason. I'm trying to figure out why, um, but until I do, if you ever ha try to get to the tvwriterpodcast.com site and you can't, you can always go to blip.tv slash tvwriterpodcast. That's blip.tv slash TV Writer Podcast. All of the episodes are there, and uh, and so you can watch them through that. Or on iTunes, you can search for TV Writer Podcast and get all of the episodes through iTunes. So that's it for the news. And now on to a bio about writer-director Eric Haywood. Eric was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He began his career as a music video director while still enrolled at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in filmmaking. After relocating to Atlanta, Eric went on to direct and produce videos featuring such artists as Usher, CeeLo Green, Outcast, New Edition, Ice-T, Tupac Shakur, and legendary Parliament Funkadelic bassist Bootsy Collins. His video for Bay Area rapper E-40's song Sprinkle Me was selected by MTV and XXL Magazine as the number 10 greatest West Coast rap video of all time. 
Eric then turned his focus to writing and moved to Los Angeles, where he landed jobs as a writer on Showtime's Soul Food, the series, and NBC's police drama Hawaii. Along the way, he has periodically returned to his filmmaking roots, writing and directing three short films, Staring at the Sun, Intersection, and Nick of Time, each of which has screened at a number of different film festivals across uh, around the country. Most recently, Eric wrote the Hallmark Channel original movie, Relative Stranger, starring Eric LaSalle and directed by Charles Burnett. After premiering in the spring of 2009, the film garnered three NAACP Image Award nominations and a Best Supporting Actress Emmy nomination for Cicely Tyson. You're going to love the interview with Eric Haywood. Let's roll. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer-director Eric Haywood. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you rushed home to get to this interview, so uh, I know that uh, that people will be very thankful that you did that. Not a problem. Cool. And uh, and so. I'm very curious about your path because you you've done a whole bunch of different things and I and I especially want to hear about the the TV and TV movie writing but I think it's very helpful to for uh, for people to hear the other parts of of your path as well because all of us take little um turns in in our in our careers and sometimes yes. it can be hard to understand how to get from one part of the industry to another so uh right. so I think it will all be very very interesting and helpful but first of all let's uh let's start with where you really got started and that's that you were born in Milwaukee? Yes, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, born and raised. Mm -hmm. And so you went to the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So, um, And at that point, you were already studying filmmaking. So it, yes. at what point did you decide, I want to do film? I think it was the... Actually, I know. It was the summer before my senior year in high school uh, because that was when I discovered there was such a thing as film school. Mm -hmm. I, hadn't, I hadn't, you know, grown up in the Midwest. I had no idea about, you know, UCLA's film program or USC or NYU or, or any of those places. I had been in love with the idea of being a filmmaker since I was very, very small, had no idea how to get from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that you could actually, I just always assume, I grew up assuming that people who made movies just sort of you know, materialized out of thin air or, you know, descended from the, the clouds and just walked into a career making movies. I didn't know you could study and train to become a filmmaker. Uh, mm. It was kind of a, a mind blowing concept when I first realized. I mean, I knew you could go to school to learn to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or, you know, any number of other things. But the the idea of going to school to learn how to make movies was was a little bit of a revelation. So that gave me a little bit of a path to begin to follow. So uh, I enrolled, not having enough money to be able to afford places like UCLA or USC or NYU, I looked sort of a closer to home and found right in my backyard, the local university had a uh, film program and I signed up and, you know, that it, I never really looked back from that point. Mm -hmm. Now, um, just a, a side question. Were you a Star Wars kid? You know, it's funny, <laughs> it's funny that you asked that. Star Wars was literally the movie that made me fall in love with movies. And it's sort of a almost a, a cliched answer. 
Mm-hmm. for people of a certain generation. But without question, I, re- I specifically remember seeing Star Wars. I mean, I always, even, you know, before Star Wars was released, I always, you know, had a, a really strong affection for movies. But I mm. I remember sitting in the, in the movie theater in Milwaukee and uh, watching Star Wars, and my mind was just completely and totally blown. Yeah. I was like, people, somebody made this. This is unbelievable. And from from that point forward, there was really never any other option for me other than some sort of life with with filmmaking. But like I said, I didn't know how to get from point A to point B Mm. at the time when I first saw Star Wars. But that literally was the movie that sort of, um, you know, set me on on fire, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and the reason I know that I I went to film school in 1990 and um, and literally when i i went to film school if the the teacher asked around the class um why did you get into film why did you get into film why did you get into film and it was the generation that everybody said star wars star wars star wars star wars star wars i don't think for for the generation of people who were inspired by star wars i don't think money had anything to do with it i think we were all probably too young to really be aware or care about things like, you know, it was a summer blockbuster and it made, you know, so many hundreds of millions of dollars. That was all, all that awareness, at least for me, came much, much later. Mm-hmm. It was really, really just this, this visceral like reaction to seeing these images on a screen that I, that just seemed like they were plucked right out, out of somebody's imagination. And I felt like if somebody can do that, if I can figure out how to do that, then you know I'll I'll be happy for the rest of my life. Yeah, oh, I I can totally totally relate. And I mean, obviously not just Star Wars, but that really opened up, uh, I think, a golden age of 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 summer blockbusters. I mean, you had the the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you had right. all the Star Trek <laughs> movies, and um, so so much of of that imagination happened around then all this the great superman films and right of course there are those people who feel like star wars was sort of the death of the sort of classic 70s american cinema Hmm. because it became all about the summer blockbuster the you know the tentpole movie the star wars and the like you said the indiana jones and the the jaws and the what have you Hmm. but you know it's just a sort of a a different way of looking you know a different side of the same coin i think Mm mm-hmm Yep, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's move back to university. You got to work right away. I mean, you yes. you started directing music videos while you were still in school. Tell me about that. Well, the goal from the time that I enrolled in college was to write and direct features. But again, I still wasn't quite quite clear on what the the exact steps were going to be. Mm-hmm. I just knew that I just didn't want to waste any time. And I knew that I needed uh, as much on-the-job training as I could possibly get. So at a certain point, I literally, you know, I figured out, well, I'm in Milwaukee. I don't have access to, you know, the pools of of acting talent that they have on the East Coast and the West Coast. And I looked around and I felt I I recognized that there were a lot of up-and-coming local musicians Mm -hmm. in the Milwaukee area. They didn't have record deals, but, you know, they had a little bit of money. And they, you know, it was the MTV was sort of at its height at the time, and everybody wanted a music video. Mm. And I realized, well, if I can get work as a music video director, uh, not only can I get paid to to direct, but 
I can use the budgets from these projects to get my hands on bigger and better equipment hmm. than that my school was, you know, had on hand. And that's exactly what I did. So literally went to Kinko's and printed up some plain black and white business cards that said Eric Haywood director uh-huh. and started sort of, you know, passing them around town until someone finally was foolish enough with my extremely limited experience to uh, give me enough money to direct a, a video for them. And then that project led to a second video. And then, you know, it sort of began to, to snowball. And the next thing I knew, I had a, a, a fairly thriving music video directing career. Hmm. Now, t- tell me just a little bit um, here in Canada, because I'm, I'm in Toronto. A lot of how music videos happen is is with government assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, people will apply for grants to the government to to get uh, production money to to shoot music videos. Um, how how are these? How at the time? How were these financed? Like, were were you paid a good amount for the for the videos? And how were how did people rally the funds together to to do these? Well, <laughs> were they good amounts? Well, good, good is certainly relative. When you are in your 20s and in college and, you know, spending, you know, a few hundred dollars on one of your student class projects feels like an arm and a leg to talk someone into giving you ten to $15,000 to do a music video, it, it certainly felt like it was a million mm. at, the, at the time. So, like I said, good is is definitely rel- relative, but they, it was certainly th- those early videos were the budgets were certainly more money than I had ever seen in my life at, at one time. Hmm. But uh, for the kinds of work that I was doing, there was certainly no government assistance. It was all privately, you know, privately financed. Someone sets up a small independent record label and they raise capital, however, you know, through hook or crook. And, and and literally, I feel like some of the some of my earliest clients. I think I, I have enough distance now that I can say this. Probably came across their their uh, their funds through questionable means, and, <laughs> and, and, and felt like you know this is a legitimate business venture, this record label that I'm starting, and so I have to act like a record label and make some music videos. Hmm. So I had long before uh, before anybody ever heard the term don't ask, don't tell, uh, I sort of had a don't ask, don't tell policy when it came to where my clients got their money. My thing was, you're hiring me to do this specific job. I'm going to do the job and do it well. And, you know, and then we'll we'll go on about our, our separate business. So uh, and then as as my career began to pick up, I actually started getting getting work from quote unquote legitimate established name recognizable record companies and uh sort of kept the, the ball rolling from there mm-hmm. well we'll get so, to, to some of those names in a second but um first you did something that was a, a little bit interesting when i re- read your bio um you moved to Atlanta. Yes. And usually when, when people are, you know, their careers are starting to pick up, that's when they might make the move to New York or, or L.A. Uh, what was it that motivated the move to Atlanta? Well, first of all, some of those early clients of mine, I, I had had shot in Atlanta quite a few times and really, really enjoyed it. I, I liked the city. I liked the crews that I worked with. Mm-hmm. And I also had to weigh the the option of going from Milwaukee to somewhere like L.A. or New York. And I just assumed that if I went to L.A. or New York, I would just be 
a, a really, really small fish in a really huge pond. Mm. Whereas Atlanta was a nice medium sized market. And at the time, in the early to mid 90s, there was a really booming film industry in, in Georgia in general and Atlanta in particular. And there also was a, a booming black music scene. Hmm. And there were record companies down there. There was a lot of rap and R&B artists who were coming out of Atlanta or they were coming from other parts of the country and, and migrating to Atlanta because they were they were a lot of people were calling it the, the new Motown at the time. And I felt like, you know what, I'm familiar with Atlanta. I have connections that I've established there. And I have a better shot at being a bigger fish in a medium-sized pond hmm. if I go that route. So that took me from uh, Milwaukee to Atlanta, hmm. where I stayed for several years. And even though I was based in Atlanta, I still got to the point where I was getting work. I, I shot, you know, Atlanta was was my base of operations, but I did projects all over the country, you know, L.A., New York. Chicago, Houston, but Atlanta was a good place to be for several years. Well, and and that must have been smart because you have worked with some big, big names. Oh my goodness! I mean, to read the list, I mean Usher, CeeLo Green, Outkast, New Edition, Ice T, Tupac Shakur. I mean, uh, Bootsy Collins, like crazy, crazy names. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, so tell me about working with some of these stars. Uh, you know what's funny at the time, uh, I don't want to name any names, but at the time when I, when you are working fairly regularly, there's a certain sort of, you know, business mindset that you have to have. Like you get over being starstruck very quickly. Mm -hmm. There were a few artists that I literally grew up listening to that um, I got to a point where I was either directing or executive producing uh, videos of theirs. And sometimes, you know, when you actually work with people up close, uh, you, you, view, you begin to view them strictly as a client and not so much as the, you know, they're the client who's driving you over budget. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. You know, with all their crazy requests and all of their, you know, showing up three hours late and and stuff like that so uh it was great i, I don't want to knock it by by any by any means but it was certainly certainly stressful working with the music industry because it, it operates on a sort of a whole different mentality it's like there's a very not the healthy respect for punctuality that people who know me know i tend to gravitate towards so there's a lot a lot of hair pulling back, <laughs> back in those days but uh it was all about getting the best finished product you could get. So I, I tend to, to think back on those years pretty fondly, but I do also remember there were some sleepless nights on some of those shoots. Hmm. Well, and um, I'm sure you got some other recognitions, but one of them that you got was um, the number 10 greatest West Coast rap video of all time. That's that's by MTV and XXL Magazine. Yes. Um, it's, and that was the song Sprinkle Me. Tell me about that accolade. You know, actually... I don't even know if accolade is the right word. I actually found out about that completely through the grapevine. There was no, you know, they never notified us. There was no, you know, plaque or certificate or ceremony. There was no big deal made of it. Someone one day said to me, you know, asked me sort of the same question you just did. They were like, well, what happened with that award you guys got? And I was like, what are you talking about? Oh no. And I had to actually go look for the copy of XXL magazine that listed, you know, they did a whole spread on the, I think it was the 
25 or the 50 greatest West Coast rap videos. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the ones that I did was there at, at number 10. So it was surprising and in a way sort of not surprising oh, in, no. in the sense that I, you know, that was how I found out. Because sometimes, you know, these things are, are put out there more for the public than they are for the people who actually made the projects happen. Mm. So I literally never got a phone call, a letter or, or anything from the, from the people who put that list together. I still, you know, claim the acknowledgement. It's, it's a nice little feather in the cap, mm. but uh, it was actually, you know, sort of an early indication of how, you know, you can do a lot of work and not necessarily get the, the accolades that people might think you get. Mm. Well, so now, so you were doing really, really well with these videos, working with some huge, huge names, and then came a shift finally to L.A. So at what point did you decide, I, I want to get back on that path that I that I started out wanting to, to be on? When I got completely and totally burned out on dealing with the record industry, mm-hmm. you know, it takes a certain mindset to live in that world and be very comfortable in it. And the thing that I always kept in mind, and this is something that I, I would tell people, you know, close friends of mine, even though I was, you know, I had a, a steady career as a video director, I never really felt like I was a music video director. I felt like I was a feature filmmaker who was masquerading as a music video director because I never once like for one minute took my eye off the goal of wanting to make movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, music videos was a way to make a living, but it was also a way to continually get hands-on experience. You know, like there were times when, you know, the, the, what you do is a record company sends you a song, you listen to it a million times and you come up with a, with a concept, mm-hmm. you write a treatment and you submit it along with your, with your budget. And you basically, you know, you're bidding on the, on the project. And there were times when I would specifically write certain things, pieces of equipment into the concept mm-hmm. because I wanted to be able to to use it and learn, you know, learn how it worked and get paid to do it. Wow. So I specifically remember, you know, jibs and cranes and steady cams that I would sort of weave and, you know, in a subtle sort of way, I would weave into the concept so that when the when the record company executive showed up on set and saw the steady cam there, you know, or they saw, you know, the line item in the budget, they would know that it was there for a specific reason. But my ulterior motive was I want to get to know how steady cams work. I want to mm. watch this guy and see what they can do and figure out how I can apply this one day to a narrative project. So in a weird sort of way, it was never that big a leap for me to go from music videos, you know, to moving to LA because that was, that was always the ultimate goal. Hmm. Now, what, what were you writing at the time? Cause you, you must have had some samples cause, um, in 2000, you, uh, you got staffed on Soul Food. What, what were the samples that you gave them and, and what were you doing up to that point? <laughs> What's funny is music video directing was my day job, but I, Early mornings and late nights were almost exclusively dedicated to writing. Mm-hmm. Even before I ever heard the term spec script, I didn't know, you know, what what that meant. But I knew what a screenplay was, mm-hmm. and I was writing a bunch of screen feature screenplays just to learn the craft and sharpen my my writing skills. So I had a bunch of scripts, some of which, you know, some of them were better than others. But one feature script in particular ended up being my sort of calling card to Los Angeles. That script ended up after several years 
getting bought by the Hallmark Channel and turned into the TV movie Relative Stranger. Interesting. Okay. In its original form, that script was one that I wrote for myself to direct. And the idea was I was going to direct that movie for basically no money in Atlanta with all unknown actors hmm. and use that as a calling card to show people that, you know, I can, you know, take a movie from concept to completion. And I ended up circulating that script to a couple of friends who were working in Los Angeles just to get some some feedback. Mm hmm because I was I was actually raising money and uh, I was gearing up to to shoot this movie and it ended up sort of like the XXL magazine thing. Uh -huh. Things have a way of happening sort of behind the scenes that you don't even really know about or you may not be aware of at the time. So that script ended up getting passed around by a lot of people mm -hmm. and it ended up in the hands of a woman named Felicia Henderson who was staffing for Soul Food the series which was mm -hmm. the spin from the the feature, yeah, and she read the script. It was a it was a black family drama, kind of in the in the vein of the show she was putting together, and that led to me getting a an offer to write a freelance episode for the first season of of her show, mm -hmm. and then that sort of snowballed into uh, a job offer to come on board the actual writing staff for the second season, and the next thing I knew, I was a television writer. Wow. I can acknowledge that at the time I was completely and totally a film snob. I, I felt like if it's not on the big screen, it doesn't quite count. You know, mm. TV is is cool, but it's not as special as getting people to come out of their homes and pay, you know, for uh, a movie theater ticket. But once I actually got on board the staff of Soul Food, I saw that unlike one feature script that may take you know several years to get made when you're on the staff of a tv show you're pitching ideas you're writing scripts those scripts are getting shot those episodes are, are you know getting edited and broadcast within a couple of months mm. and in the meantime you're back to writing another script you know pitching another story writing another script and the the wheel keeps on turning and i realized like as a writer it was the perfect place to be because I was constantly writing hmm. as opposed to, you know, a feature as opposed to a labor of love feature script that people may may want to polish over and over and do a hundred drafts. If there was a lot of pressure in television to get it right, you know, the first time around because, hmm. you know, you had a tight schedule. It had to be shot. It had to be, you know, there was a broadcast date already somewhere, you know, set in stone that you couldn't overshoot. So, you know, you're in the room, in the writer's room, and you're constantly pitching, and you can't fall too in love with any of your brilliant ideas when uh, you're on a writing staff. Because if you pitch an idea that you think is great, and the executive producers don't like it, you can't pout. You have to, <laughs> you, know, you have to immediately say, okay, you didn't like that idea. How about this one? Mm -hmm. And figure out what it is that they're looking for that maybe your original pitch didn't quite have. So it was it was very much like a writer's boot camp that you got, you know, very well paid for. So I very quickly latched on to the idea of being a, a, a television staff writer. Mm -hmm. And and that boot camp actually lasted a while because you, you were several seasons on that show, weren't you? Yeah. So it ran for for five seasons. Mm hmm. And you were yeah, from season two to season five. So season one, you had that freelance script and then you were yes. on staff from season two to season five. 
Yes. Wow. Great yeah. opportunity, man. Uh, and uh, and you now you did also direct a short film in that time around yes. 2001, 2002. So um, so you you still had that urge to be a filmmaker. Yeah, you know, when I when I think back on it, and I usually don't think back on it that much because I'm too busy, you know, trying to to figure out what I'm, you know, doing now and what I'm doing next. But but in when I have conversations like this one, and I think back, I, I begin to recognize certain patterns in my own behavior. Mm -hmm. So yeah, even when I was writing for television, the goal was still to be a filmmaker, because one of the one of the biggest educations that I got when I joined the Soul Food staff, you know, you would, I would always hear that film is a director's medium, but TV is a writer's medium. Hmm. And as a writer, I thought, well, this is great, you know, because I'll get to, you know, really hone my writing skills. But the thing that I learned that nobody ever really, you know, emphasizes is, yes, TV is a writer's medium, but you're not there like a Broadway playwright to see your own individual vision on the on the TV screen every week. You're there specifically to service the showrunner's vision of that show. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you have to learn how to take the best of your own voice and sort of blend it with the the voice of the show, which is another good skill, a very good skill to have. Mm -hmm. So as great as that was, it was still, you know, someone else's voice that you had to sort of figure out how to mimic every time you got assigned an episode to write. So I still had the directing bug. I still wanted to, you know, sort of write and direct my own stuff. And it had been a, a few years since I had left the music video world behind. And I felt like, you know, I really want to get back to kind of flexing those directorial muscles that I haven't used in a while. So I wrote and directed a, a short and, you know, really began to remember why I got into this thing in the first place. I, I realized like, yes, this is what I want to do. I love working on someone else's show and having, you know, I didn't have to deal with the headaches of dealing with the network and the studio. That was all the executive producer's responsibility. Mm -hmm. All I had to do was pitch ideas and, and write them. But I also had a craving for a little taste of that responsibility. I wanted to be able to say, you know, this is something that I thought of, that I wrote and that I directed and it was sort of, you know, has my fingerprints on it all the way through. Mm -hmm. And and we'll get to some of your um, other directing projects in a minute, but um, in 2004, you also did NBC's police drama, Hawaii. So, uh, so yes. tell me a little bit about, um, this was only your second experience now with the, with yes. a TV staff. How did you get that gig? And, and what was that room like compared to soul food? Uh, I got that gig because I wrote a spec script for the West wing mm -hmm. that I guess I can say this without sounding like I'm patting myself on the back. Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote the, it has sort of a twist ending that I was later told made the showrunner's wife cry. Oh, wow. And she took it to the showrunner and said, you have to read this. And, you know, that ended up getting me the, the job on Hawaii. And as happy as I was to have that job, it was in the early stages, pretty terrifying. Because when I was on Soul Food, Sofu did very well for, for Showtime, the network mm -hmm. that it was on, but it was still sort of, you know, it was a pay cable channel. It was a little bit of a, of a niche. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hawaii, I felt like I was really stepping into a major 
broadcast network crime time situation. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I was nervous because I, I wasn't quite sure if I had what it took to be able to survive in that environment mm-hmm. creatively. But I was also intrigued because I felt like, you know what, this is great because it was it was cool being on Soul Food, but this is NBC now. And I'm actually going to be able to see firsthand how they really make the magic of major network television. Mm -hmm. So I got in there and for the first month or so, I was completely and totally intimidated. I hardly pitched anything. Oh, no. And, And then one day it just sort of clicked. I realized like these and the, there were there were producers and 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 co-eps on on hawaii who had come from some some pretty big name shows so i was intimidated just you know even being in the room with them but after the first few weeks i realized i looked around and i said to myself you know what they're doing the process of doing this show as far as writing it is exactly the same as what we used to do on soul food Mm -hmm. you sit around the room you bounce ideas off the wall there's a big white dry erase whiteboard that somebody gets up and, and you know, writes notes on. Uh, and even the most experienced writer in the room might pitch an idea that the showrunner shoots down. Hmm. And the least experienced person in the room might pitch an idea that the whole room falls in love with. And then that, you know, we begin kicking that around and it becomes an episode. Mm-hmm. So I realized like the, the only difference between Soul Food in Hawaii was one of of scale. You know, it was NBC. It was primetime. Like I said, they had more money. Mm -hmm. But as far as being a writer, the process was exactly the same. So I sort of had this little epiphany one day. And after that, all the intimidation that I felt completely disappeared. I felt like, you know what? I'm here for a reason. I deserve to be here. And I I sort of saw myself as a a full-fledged member of the team from that point forward and, and ended up having a great time. Hmm. Great. Now, the other difference I'll say mm-hmm. between between Soul Food and Hawaii, as we just discussed, Soul Food ran for five seasons, and Hawaii was a very, very heavily promoted police drama for NBC. I think there was an Olympics that year, uh-huh. and a Summer Olympics, and NBC promoted Hawaii. It was going to be the first uh, of the fall shows that year to to premiere. Mm-hmm. And they heavily, heavily promoted this show all through the Olympics. It was one of those things where I foolishly at the time assumed like, well, I'm set now. I made it. I crossed Uh into the promised land of television writing. And seven or eight episodes later, we were canceled. Wow. So I went from the smaller show that 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 went, you know, pretty well for five seasons to the major leagues. And, you know, we were all out of a job. Uh, after seven or eight episodes. And that also was a shock to the system. Yeah. So there's been this sort of like continuing education process of, you know, don't count your chickens before they hatch. You have no idea, you know, when you're, when you're joining a brand new show, you could be joining the next CSI that goes on for, you know, nine, 10 seasons and spawns an entire franchise or you could be joining the next Hawaii that people think is going to be huge and doesn't make it to Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for anybody who doesn't work in the industry, I, I do work in, in television as well. For anybody who doesn't work in the industry, you don't know how stressful it can be when your show is canceled mid-season 
because the hiring is so cyclical. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it, most of it, it's a little different now, but especially back in 2004, most of the shows staffed in in May. And so, if it, what was oh, it yeah. like hearing that your your show was dropped? Um, and at that point in the year, well, we were kind of dead man walking for a while because because the the ratings started out pretty good and then they fell off pretty pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I think I am, this was the same year that Lost premiered. Oh boy! And both of these shows, matter of fact, it was Lost and Hawaii and. Fox had a show called North Shore. Mm -hmm. so all three of these shows were filming in Hawaii around the around the same time. Wow! And Lost, of course, went on to become you know this this instant classic, and it took off right out of the starting gate. Yeah. And Hawaii and North Shore kind of limped out of the starting gate, so it was pretty apparent for a while that. We, you know, they go through the thing of, you know, are we going to move, change the time slot? Are we going to change some aspect of the show to try to save it? But by, mm, let's see, by October, we pretty much knew that uh, it was just going to be a matter of time. And uh, and then one day I heard, we, we got word, I was back in, in LA in the writer's office, and we heard that once the, once the announcement came down from the network, the producers that we were canceled, the producers went to set and they were like in the middle of shooting a scene hmm. and they pulled the plug. Oh my said, goodness. We're done. Everybody pack up and go home. So oh, wow. uh, I think that is much more of a shock to the system when you're actually there trying to do your best to turn the ship around and somebody comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, you know what? We're not even going to let you finish filming this episode where, you know, where the, the plug has been pulled. Wow. And, and that was it. Wow. So, I mean, that must have been pretty disheartening. And uh, and then afterwards, what did you do? After that, I like to say that I was I was plunged into unemployment for a little while because, like you said, it, it's cyclical. You know, mm -hmm. you can't. It's very difficult in in October to go from from a show that just got canceled to hop on to another show because every other show is already staffed. Mm -hmm. So I basically took a lot of meetings because there were some people. One of the other things about Soul Food was we were sort of off season. Mm -hmm. So because I had a job all those all those years for on soul food, I didn't have to do the 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 typical, you know, the annual meet and greets of all the the new shows and showrunners and network executives because I knew that I had a job to go back to. Mm -hmm. But when when Hawaii was canceled, there were a slew of people that my agent was like, OK, we got to get you to meet these people and this network and these showrunners. And so I took tons of meetings and along the way, one, one day out of the blue, I got a phone call from my agent saying my relative strangers feature script, which had floated, continued to float around town and had been turned down by a lot of places, by a mm -hmm. lot of networks. The, the Hallmark channel read it and loved it and wanted to buy it. Wow. So that became, you know, my, my next, thing that I that I jumped onto not as you know uh sustainable financially as being on a on a series where you get a, a weekly paycheck but it was it was sort of the best of both worlds in that a something I was I had written was getting produced and I was getting paid for it and b it was much more my voice hmm. than you know going back to that thing of being on a tv series 
your job is to mimic the the voice and tone of, of an established show. This was sort of my thing. Mm. And uh, even though, you know, one of the Hallmark Channel's conditions for buying the script was that I, because uh, they knew that I had attached myself as as director and they mm. also knew that it was a a very personal story for me yeah and they said you know my agent said well there's there's a catch uh, they're not gonna let you direct it oh no and i said you know what but but the thing is i had gained enough experience in the business in the in the years between i had moved to la and the time that they wanted to buy this script that i understood where they were coming from mm. uh, i think if if I had sold that script the first couple of years after moving to Los Angeles, I would have laid down in traffic rather than let someone, you know, bring in another director because it was, you know, but, you know, making a, a movie, whether it's a TV movie or something for theatrical release, it's a multi-million dollar operation. And you don't want to just hand it over to someone who's directed a bunch of music videos mm. and a couple of short films and hope he knows what he's doing. Right. You want to bring in somebody, you know, they, it was, it was modestly budgeted and they needed to be sure that whoever they had as director, you know, had enough experience to, to know what they were doing. And when I heard that uh, Charles Burnett was going to direct it, I said, Oh, well, this is a guy whose work that I studied when I was mm. in college. Wow. So I absolutely have no qualms about <laughs> stepping aside yeah. to, uh, to let someone like that direct it. Wow. And uh, and now so that was released uh, in what two thousand nine? That was was it two thousand nine or two thousand eight? It's a blur. Yeah, One of those. yeah, might have uh, been nine. So how how was that process different uh, from that point? I mean, it, it had been already written, but you must have had to rewrite it for the act uh, to get the act breaks right. And and well, and, here's the th here's the, the the good thing about that situation: there were no act breaks. It was written as a theatrical, you know, feature, mm -hmm. you know, so there, like I said, there were no act breaks, but they actually didn't want act breaks because one of part of their approach is we want to be able to have the freedom in post to cut to a commercial whenever we want to. Mm. So we don't want you to write it as precisely as a as a an episode of commercial TV. Interesting. We'll decide where the act breaks go, mm -hmm. which is you know sort of a necessary evil when you're when you know one of the, one of the other good things that I learned over my years of writing on a couple of different staffs is you have to learn how to let go of even your most personal work. Mm. And I became very practical about it after a while. It's like, look, they're paying you a lot of money. They're not going to pay you a lot of money and then let you still call the shots. Right. So once you sign on the dotted line and you sign that script over to them, it's, it's theirs. It's like if you sell your house and the new owner wants to paint the whole thing blue, you don't get to say no. <laughs> you, you know, it's theirs now. Yeah. You, you can feel however you want to feel about it, but, but it no longer belongs to you. And if you didn't want it, if you wanted to guarantee that your, you know, your house would never be painted blue, don't sell it. Right. It's very, very simple, which is a hard thing to, 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 to learn when you are first breaking in because you kind of, you want, you want both. You want, you know, access, you want your foot in the door and you also want your vision preserved. And you very rarely, you know, in the early years of your, of anybody's career, you very rarely get both. So 
being a very practical person, it was sort of easy for me to, to learn that lesson and realize like, look, this is, this is, I still consider it mine because, you know, I spent so many years with the script, but, uh, but also to answer your other question, yeah, there were, there were tons of rewrites and that was sort of my, that was sort of my first introduction to Hollywood's thing where they say, we love this. We want to buy it. We want to make it. And then you, you, you get very giddy. Uh-huh. And as soon as, you know, as soon as the check clears, they say, okay, now here's a list of 50 notes. We want you have things we want you to fix and change and add and cut. And you're standing there like, wait a minute. I thought you loved it. <laughs> well, yeah, they do love it, but they also have some other concerns or they have some, and, but the, the, the good thing about the Hallmark channel was their notes were extremely smart notes. Mm-hmm. And I never once got a note from them that I just had to begrudgingly apply. Mm. Eric LaSalle, who, who signed on for the lead role, also had extremely smart notes. So they all helped. It wasn't just a job. You know, people were trying to actually make it the the, the best it could be. So mm. uh, that was actually a, a, a great thing to, to be a part of. Very, very cool. Well, um, and now you had another interesting shift, and that was around the same time, uh, 2005. Uh, this was your first foray into reality TV with Foodie Call. Tell me about that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what can I say? Yeah, that was my first and last brush with, with, with quote-unquote reality television. Uh-huh. Um, it, was, it was a job. It was something where I had gotten a contact and they said, "Hey, do you want to come work on on this this new show?" It was a it was a cooking dating show. A cooking dating show. <laughs> yeah, where the idea was like you either there was a couple, and either the man or the woman would would prepare some special food dish in order, you know, to romance, you know, their their partner. Uh huh. And it was, you know, what can I say, man? It was it was. I think that it's probably telling that it's something that I only did once. Uh-huh. Once you, I mean, all a lot of the things you hear about reality TV not being reality, like people say that a lot, but they say that because it's true. Mm-hmm. It's like there's so much that's that's sort of staged and manufactured, and you know, you need to you need to craft a little bit of a story arc for the sake of the audience. Mm-hmm. So you're not by any stretch of the imagination making a documentary. Right. And it, it just, it, it ultimately wasn't where my, my interests really lie. So once again, another little sort of feather in the cap, but um, I was all too happy to get back into the world where, you know, we do fiction and we acknowledge that it's fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and another thing you did at the same time was another short film, Intersection. Tell me about yeah. that one. Intersection, once again, it was, it had been a while since I had directed. I felt like I wanted to keep those sort of directorial muscles kind of in shape. And I had a little bit of money and I had a, a concept that I felt was fairly easy to execute. I just had the directing bug. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was nothing more complicated or, or involved than that. I wanted to once again get back in the director's chair and have something that creatively I was I was solely responsible for so with with each of my shorts you know they all had uh, a healthy run at film fest at film festivals around the country uh, none of them won any awards but I mean it was just, it's always good when 
you write and direct something and you edit it and you kind of slave over it. And then you put it in front of an audience who doesn't know you at all. And you actually, you actually get to sit in the room with them and kind of hold your breath and hope that they, that they laugh in the right places. Mm -hmm. They gasp in the right places. And that is, is extremely fulfilling when, Mm. when those moments click with, with an audience. So I love doing shorts. I've always liked, you know, being able to sort of story-wise kind of get in and get out. Very, very cool. Well, and, uh, and you also did an, uh, another one towards 2010, but um, I know IMDb often has gaps. There's, there's a bit of a gap in, in that time. What were you working on sort of between 2005 and 2009, 10, around there? 2005 and 2010, a lot of feature specs, a mm-hmm. lot of TV specs, a lot of pilots and a lot of meetings mm-hmm. and trying to get on board another TV series. And I, I just recently, so after doing that for a number of years, I just recently, and the other thing that was an obstacle that I began running into was what you know, a lot of people will, you know, freely acknowledge this. The, the, the TV writing game has gotten tougher just purely because of the economy. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of networks begin to cut back on the size of their writing staffs. Mm-hmm. A show that might have at one point had 10 or 12 writers is now making do with eight. Yeah. Or a show that might have had 10 writers is now making do with six. And not only that, a lot of shows compounded that problem by hiring. They, they were staff on the high end and the low end, meaning you would have a bunch of co-executive producers and a couple of staff writers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes those staff writers and their, you know, eagerness to just to, to, to get work would sometimes split a, you know, work as a writing team on paper, even though mm-hmm. they weren't really a writing team. So they'd be working for half the salary that they were supposed to be getting. Wow. So the competition got really, really fierce. And I did a lot of pitching of shows. Eric LaSalle and I went out with a, with a pitch. A couple of pitches, actually. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, knocking on doors. And so though that, that gap in my IMDb on my IMDb page is actually accurate in that it wasn't that I wasn't doing anything. It was that I was doing things. I was both writing and taking tons of meetings and, and pitching and just sort of recently got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I don't really foresee things changing too much in the TV staffing game anytime in the near future. I think it's going to continue. And also the push towards, you know, more reality shows means less scripted, you know, drama and and sitcom opportunities. Mm -hmm. So I decided to finally redirect myself and get back to the thing that brought me out to Los Angeles in the first place, which is directed writing and directing my own features. Mm. So I have a feature actually that I have been slaving away on for Got close to a year now that I'm finally uh, arrived at a, a draft that I am satisfied with. So my, my next step is going to be shooting my first feature later this year. Great. Great. And so you'll be directing that as well? Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it, and it's nice that, that um, the shows that you worked on, I'm sure, got you uh, set up more for that. That I mean, if you had tried to do that in 2000, you would, ju- would just not have had the resources, I'm sure. Oh, definitely not. I mean, you know, there's so much information 
available now that's re- readily available in terms of, you know, just the, the, the process of filmmaking. There are, you know, the technology has changed. Things have gotten cheaper between the internet and, and cell phones and Vimeo and YouTube and Netflix. There are so many more avenues now than, than there used to be mm-hmm. to, uh, to get yourself in front of an audience. In addition to the more traditional routes of, festivals and and theatrical distribution. So I'm actually a lot more optimistic now than than I probably would have been if I had, you know, tried to go for it several years back. Mhm. Very very cool. And uh and so uh, now we're at the the point in the interview where we talk about tips and you've you've touched a lot of different parts of the industry. Primarily we're we're a TV podcast, but um but you've also touched different parts of TV. You've, you've worked for cable, for network, and also uh, TV movies. So for for a writer who wanted to break into any of these, what would your advice be? Well, I would say, I think I just either yesterday or the day before saw a, descript, uh, a conversation rather on, on Twitter. It might have been script chat, I'm not sure, where people were, were asking about, you know, do people want, for samples, do people want of existing shows or do they want pilots and it's all uh, you know original pilots mm-hmm. it's always been my experience that the answer ultimately is both mm-hmm. you should always have literally every year you should have at least one new solid tv spec and one new pilot because there are some showrunners or networks who specifically don't want to read your original pilot. They only want to read, you know, specs of existing shows. So once again, they can see how well you mimic an existing show. Do do you get it? Did you Mm -hmm. do your homework? And then just as often, there are people who absolutely just want to see, they want to see your original voice. So they don't want to see your, you know, your CSI spec or your law and order spec or your entourage spec. They want to see, you know, your original work. And then they'll make their judgment off of that based on whether they think, you know, you have talent enough to continue pursuing an interest in you. Mm -hmm. So there's really no either or. It's like your, your, your best bet is to have one of each chambered so that whoever you encounter, you know, if, if you have a, a great good wife spec, and you happen to get a, you know, introduced to someone, you know, for a show or, or a job opportunity that we will be great for you, but they don't want to read your, your spec. They want to read something original. You know, you don't want the pressure of having to run home and crank out a brand new, you know, spec pilot in a couple of days so that you don't <laughs> get the opportunity. Yeah. Your best bet is really to have, have both on, on hand. And I think that that applies to both drama and, uh, sitcom writing. Hmm. Well, and and also, it, I think if people are applying to this industry, if they get a job, they're going to be cranking and cranking and cranking and cranking out material. So yes. if if you can't write a number of different scripts, it really doesn't show that you can do it. Absolutely, that's that's the other thing. It's like if you spent you know two years working on the perfect you know house spec, you know that, that might get you in the door. But then what happens when, like I said, when you have to constantly crank out new pitches and new drafts and you don't have the luxury 
of a year or two to, to polish it and make it, you know, make it pristine. You know, you need to be able to demonstrate that that you can do a, a, a variety of things rather than just do one thing really, really well. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent, excellent, excellent advice. Um, and uh, and I, th- I think as well, even just looking at uh, at your career path, I think there are many, many things that people can glean about um, how you were smart about uh, about approaching different things, like in the music videos, wanting to use the different equipment, and and uh, and also uh, it just sounds like you've been doing a lot of that writing yourself, always keeping busy, and and also pursuing your passion. I really appreciate the fact that that you're 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 getting to what you love the best. Yeah, and, definitely. And sometimes it takes a while to get there, but I'm glad you're getting there. <laughs> Thank you very much, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and people can follow you on Twitter as well, right? Yes, they can. I, my, as it says in my bio, I forget exactly how I worded it, but I'm not the kind of person who tweets about, you know, any one thing all the time. Hmm. Sometimes, you know, I will sit down in front of a movie that I either haven't seen or or have seen a hundred times and I'll sit and just sort of, you know, live tweet some observations about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it might be something a little more personal. Sometimes it might be something a little more political. Sometimes it might just be a random thought that has nothing to do with anything. Um, so I'm a little bit all over the map, but but that's one of the, the things that I love uh, about Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, Twitter is Twitter is awesome. Yeah. Uh, cool. And and I guess uh, you do pop into script chat so people could uh, interact with you there. You know, I've been I've been lurking the last couple of weeks, and I actually wanted. I think it was yesterday's script chat that I, I saw the the discussion about samples mm-hmm. because I wanted to jump in and say something, but I was literally rushing to meet my self-imposed deadline of getting my rewrite finished oh, okay. by by Sunday. Yeah. And I knew if I had started tweeting, I would I would get sucked in and I'd still be working on it today. So I had to, you know, sort of step back. But I do think in the future I'm gonna be a little try to be a little bit more involved in uh, in script chat. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. And there's a TV writer chat as well, right after script chat. Yeah, uh, I only just heard about that, I think, through you. So I want to yeah. start checking that out a little more often. Yeah, very, very cool. Well, I know we've uh, we've run a bit longer than we originally thought. I, I appreciate so much uh, you taking the time and, and just sharing your wisdom. It's, it's really problem. great to hear your path. And, and like I said, the fact that you're pursuing your passion and getting so many of, of these great projects made is is really wonderful to hear. So um, thank you very much. Yeah. So thanks so much and, and best of luck to you and definitely tweet about and, and let me know about uh, when your your feature gets made. We, we want to make sure to get as many people as pop- possible out to see that. I will do that. Thank you very much. Great. Okay. Thanks, Eric. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. Uh-huh.